Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's bow our heads together for prayer. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer so you have the opportunity to make sure that you are ready to study the word this evening and to focus on what God the Holy Spirit has to teach us, that we are spiritually prepared to study the word this evening. So uh, after a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're indeed grateful as we come into this 4th of July weekend that we have the freedom that we have, the freedom still to believe what we wish to believe, to teach what we wish to teach, to proclaim the truth of your word, and that everyone in this nation has freedom still to say what they want to say, to express their opinions, Father. It's on the basis of this freedom that this country has been uh, blessed so much because of the freedom to respond to you and to believe your word and to apply your word. Father, we pray for our nation's leaders. We pray for all of those in uh, government, from local government all the way up to the White House, that they would have advisors who would be wise, they would have advisors who would be constitutional, and they would have advisors who would uphold the principle of true, genuine freedom throughout uh, all, all levels of advice and legislation and policymaking. Father, we pray for us as believers in Jesus Christ who have freedom, spiritual freedom in him, and we pray that you would continue to strengthen us and encourage us in your word. And tonight, as we continue our study in Romans, we pray that we might come to a greater understanding of these tremendous truths that are here, that we might understand your grace even more. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are in Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. Now, throughout time, from Genesis chapter 3, when Satan first tempted Eve, all the way up until the end of the uh, messianic or millennial kingdom, as described in Roman—I mean in Revelation chapter 20, the greatest enemy of God always proclaims the same truth, and that is that man can come ha- somehow come into God's favor on the basis of his own good works, on the basis of his own morality on the basis of his own efforts, that somehow we can bring something to God that God will favor. The very first time we see this conflict is in Genesis chapter 4, when after God had already taught the principle of animal sacrifice to Adam and Eve, uh, Cain comes and brings, instead of an animal for a sacrifice, instead of a lamb for, for a sacrifice, he brings the fruit of his own effort. And it was probably gorgeous fruit. We've probably never seen fruit that beautiful. And he had worked at that and produced it, and that was his offering to God. It was what he had done. But what Abel brought had nothing to do with his own efforts. It had to do with what God had provided. And he brought what God had commanded, and that is a lamb that was without spot or blemish, a lamb to be sacrificed. And from the beginning of history, there's this conflict between works and grace. And one of the difficult things with grace on the part of the people who believe in works is that they voice the objection that, well, if God forgives you, 
not because of what you do, but because of what Jesus did, or he just freely forgives you, then what keeps you in line? And they forget that God keeps us in line. That is still a principle. Uh, Belief that salvation is based on faith alone in Christ alone does not mean that Christians can just do whatever they wish to do whenever they wish to do it and however they wish to do it. Uh, There is grace does not mean antinomianism or licentiousness, and this is a problem that comes up in the second chapter. Now, just to remind you a little bit about the context as we're going through Romans, the focus in Romans is righteousness, the righteousness of God. And the issue in Romans is that man, since Adam's disobedience to God, is not adjusted. He is not in line with, he does not conform to the perfect righteousness of God. And unless the creature conforms to the perfect righteousness of God, we can't have a relationship with God. God's standard has to be set. Last time I opened using an illustration that is a pretty common illustration of used in evangelism, that if you were to die today and appear before God and he were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven? He's got standards. A lot of people think God's just going to let everybody in no matter what because God doesn't have any standards. That's really a pathetic view of God. Everybody has some kind of standard. Uh, When somebody comes and knocks on your door, you're not going to let just anybody come in the front door. Uh, When you go to uh, the airport, they're not going to let just anybody go through the line and get on an airplane. Uh, If you go to the White House, they're not going to let just anybody come through and go walk into the White House. Everybody has some kind of standard that has to be met in order to uh, enter into their home. And God has a standard, and that standard is is expressed in both the uh, Hebrew Old Testament and the Greek New Testament by a word group that is translated as either righteousness, which emphasizes the standard, or justice, which emphasizes conformity to that standard or adjusting uh, the creature to the righteous standard of God. And so we see in this section that we studied from 118 down through 25, and I stopped somewhere right around 25 last time, that this is a section that fits together. Now, what's interesting is last time, just in the afternoon as I was studying, I saw something that I'd never seen going through this passage before in the Greek, and I saw something else related to it that supports it this time. And it goes against how just about everybody outlines and punctuates Romans chapter 1, 18, down through chapter 2. And if you look at your, at your English text there at the end of chapter uh, uh, 2, verse 5, you will see that the New King James, and I didn't really have time to check other versions, but I think most of them do, end verse 5 with a comma, and it should be a period. And that's really significant, not because it should be a period. There's no punctuation in the original Greek. You have to uh, discern that from your study of sentence structure and syntax. But it makes tremendous sense when you study through the context. And so this section hangs together, and then there's a shift that occurs in verse 6 that goes down to verse 16 that takes us into another uh, another direction. So to understand this, I'm going to go back to Romans 1, uh, 17 and 18 and just kind of walk us through this structure. In 1, 17, we have the statement of the theme, for in it, that is the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. His standard is revealed that man can't get there on his own. No matter how good we are, no matter how religiously observant we might be, no matter how ethical or moral we might be, nobody's perfect. God's perfect because God's perfect. Nobody can get into heaven unless they meet his standards. So how can we as creatures that are permanently flawed, if you make one mistake, that's it. It's God has a zero tolerance policy when it comes to righteousness. If you, there's one sin, one failure, then you can't get into heaven. You're a sinner. You're fallen. You're flawed. There, the only way to get in is if you get in on the basis of somebody else's 
righteousness. So this is what is revealed in the gospel, is the righteousness of God. And notice it has, again, we have this word uh, revealed here in the English. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And then in verse 18, we have a paragraph shift, and we have this explanation that begins with the word for, for the wrath of God. Notice that wrath of God is a, I keep saying this, make sure you understand this, is a dramatic way of expressing the harshness of divine judgment. But see, God is gracious. So God's just not this big meanie sitting up in heaven who wants to thump everybody on the head and flick them off into the lake of fire. But he's provided the solution. But if they reject his solution, which he freely gives then he, he will, on the basis of his own character, have to bring about a just punishment. So we learn that the wrath of God, which is a term for his justice, the, enact, the enactment of his judgment, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in or by means of unrighteousness, uh, right thing done in the wrong way. The wrong way is doing it by means of unrighteousness. So a right thing done in the wrong way is wrong, and a wrong thing done in the wrong way is wrong. And man does everything in a wrong way by means of unrighteousness. So we're all suppressing, rationalizing, justifying why God really isn't going to hold everyone to this standard. That just really irritates a lot of people that God is exclusive. God's going to say, well, I'm only going to let some people in here. And a lot of people get mad. They want God to let them in on their terms and not God's terms, but they don't apply that in their own life. They only think God needs to listen to them rather than the other way around. So we suppress the truth by means of unrighteousness. Then as Paul develops his, his flow of thought, He's going to give two different consequences that flow from that. And he expresses this grammatically by using this unusual word to express therefore. The usual word in Greek that you have for therefore is the word un, O-U-N. But what we have in verse 24, and again in chapter 2, verse 1, is the word dia. And dia has the idea, uh, same idea, it's drawing an inference or conclusion from a set of uh, uh, premises, but it tells us that, that in terms of Paul's flow here, in terms of the structure, you have the first set of consequences or the first set of results that occur from man's rejection of God and his suppression of truth and unrighteousness, and then you have a second line of consequences. And these two lines of consequences um, <clears throat> characterize everybody in the, in the human race. You're either flowing towards that first set, which is immoral degeneracy, just rank immorality, and there's a list of, of uh, numerous sins there that people get involved in from verse uh, 24 all the way down to verse 32. And these are people who just want to throw off all standards, all norms and standards, all right and wrong, and just do whatever they want to do and just follow the flow of their sin nature in a completely unrestrained manner. And when we have these three stages of God's discipline stated as God gave them over, each time God is just simply letting them uh, work out the consequences or experience the consequences of their own bad decisions. Okay, you want to get to see if you can get away with that? Great. I'm going to let you get away with it, and we'll just see how bad it gets. Then you want to get away with something more? Well, I'm just going to let you get away with that, and we're going to see how bad it gets until you self-destruct. Now, the way we've diagrammed this often is with the sin nature in, in expressing this in terms of lust patterns, that lust goes in one of two directions, and we tend to trend towards either self-righteousness or we trend towards licentiousness. Self-righteousness is the idea, I can do good. I'm not a sinner. I haven't committed a sin in 15 years. Really? What about arrogance? Well, that's not a sin. I only have five sins. As long as I don't, don't do those five things, then I'm okay. 
Now, we laugh at that, but there are actually people who believe that, that there are only seven or eight sins, and they don't commit those sins, so they're okay. They never really seem to factor in mental attitude sins like anger, jealousy, frustration, bitterness, envy. All of those things seem to not enter into the equation. They just want to list sins that they don't commit, and then they're okay. Everybody else is wrong. So you have the problem with the ascetic or the legalist or the self-righteous person on the one hand who is so moral in his own eyes that he is above everybody else. And then on the other hand, you have the person who eschews all uh, standards and ethical codes and just does whatever they want to do, and they're licentious and lascivious and antinomian, which means against law. They just reject any kind of norms and standards whatsoever, and everybody can do just whatever they want to, and that leads to immoral degeneracy. Chapter 1, verses 24 down to 32, gives all these sins that are part of the immoral degeneracy pattern. Then when we got to Romans 2, verse 1 last time, indicated by that first dia, Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. So now he shifts his focus to the one who is in self-righteous condemnation of others. That's the nuance of judgment here, as I pointed out before. It's the person who who has uh, lived their life according to their own rigid code of conduct and they look down on everybody else, and they're the ones who are constantly pointing out some flaw that somebody else, well, that person is a a liar, and they are constantly lying when they're at work. And they, they notice that, but then they're lying also. They lie maybe to their wife or to their kids or to themselves uh, in self-deception, but they're also committing that same, uh, sin. And so they're just as guilty of the sin that they're condemning. And this is what Paul points out. He says, therefore, you are without excuse. Now, that word, as I pointed out last time, is the same word that's used back in verse 20 of chapter 1, showing that God's, God's existence is clear to everybody, so clear through uh, his creation that everybody's without excuse. Now, you always find people who come along and say, well, wait a minute, what about so-and-so out in in the boondocks somewhere, whether it's out in the bush in Africa or whether it's out in the desert or, or the backcountry in, uh, in Australia or it's out on some isolated island down uh, in, in the South Pacific or wherever it is. What about people who who never heard? But they're really not concerned about people who never heard. They just want to find an out for themselves. That's really the subtext there. They're not saying, well, what about those who never heard? They're just saying, well, I've already made a decision that God can't possibly have known about these people. And he couldn't possibly have gotten the gospel to those people because I never heard about it. I know everything. And so because God wouldn't be fair with them, that negates the whole thing. And so I'm going to get away with it scot-free. That's really what they're saying. They're trying to absolve themselves of any accountability in this by uh, some sleight of hand and and saying that God just is righteous because he couldn't get the gospel to those people. Well, they don't know. They don't know what some of these uh, groups have ever ever experienced or ever had or if there were any missionaries that ever made it there either in this century or last century or 15 centuries ago. We just don't know. There's little hints here and there when we have, uh, in the last couple of hundred years, gone to places that we thought nobody had ever been to before and discovered that somebody had actually been there before. And there are places in China and in India where there are people who are part of ethnic groups that survived and have a tradition going back to the first century that a, an apostle came to that area and presented the gospel and founded a small group of Christians and that they're, uh, they continued down through the centuries. So we just don't know. You can't say, well, what about the person who never heard? Is there a person who never heard? The other part of it is if God is omniscient and there's enough evidence, nonverbal evidence in creation to his existence, then God in his omniscience would know if somebody looked out there at the stars and said, 
There's got to be something a little more powerful than that block of wood back in the village that we're all bowing down to. And if they have a spark of positive volition and God knows it in his justice, he will make sure someone gets to them or they get captured as a slave and taken somewhere to hear the gospel. And they will hear the gospel because God in his omniscience and in his omnipotence is able to pull off whatever he wants to pull off that's consistent with his justice and his righteousness. So he recognizes this basic principle here that there are those who are so arrogant and so filled with the sense of their own uh, morality. And there's nothing wrong with having high standards, tremendous ethics, and having a strong sense of morality. That is needed. Without that, a culture will crumble. And we're witnessing some of that in our own time. But you... That's not the basis for having a relationship with God or getting into heaven. So Paul says you're without excuse, the the one who judges, condemns out of self-righteousness. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same thing. That may not be the most precise replica of the sin, but it's the same category. And so God makes it clear that no one is without excuse. Paul goes on to say in verse 2, but we know that the judgment of God is according to truth. So it's a standard that only God knows all the facts. God is omniscient. He knows everything. He knows things about us that we don't know. We don't remember. We're we're, uh, sort of uh, dense to when we are blind to when we do these things. Yet God knows all the facts. And because he is perfectly righteous, he's going to utilize those facts in a perfectly righteous manner. So he will judge according to the truth against those who practice such things. That is the self-righteous. So the self-righteous person, the self-righteous moral ethical person is just as guilty of failing to live up to God's standard as the immoral uh, licentious person. And then we come to verse 4. Paul then asks another rhetorical question. Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? And the point here is at the, the end of the sentence. It is the goodness of God. That's a part of his righteousness. Usually when I break down the essence of God, I don't include something like goodness. But goodness is one way theologians have also expressed part of God's righteousness, an aspect of it. He is good to us. He is not mean. He is not uh, vindictive. He is a good God, and he will do the right thing because he alone is righteous as as Abraham uh, observed and as Job observed. How will not the uh, judge of all the earth do right? So God always does what is right. So what Paul points out here is that God, by not lowering the boom on us when we are disobedient and sinful, he not only gives us time to 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 see how bad we can be and to experience the negative consequences of our bad decisions, but also he is wooing us, as it were, through his kindness and his goodness to turn back to him. And so the God's ultimate go- goal is that we turn to him, that human beings turn to him and have a relationship with him. He's not sitting up there looking for opportunities to uh, bring judgment upon us. So, But this self-righteous person is, despises that. He, he thinks that he's okay because God hasn't really taken him through any extreme consequences for sin. So he's thinking, I'm okay, I'm moral, I'm ethical, everything's fine with me. But God is giving him time so that God can lead him to repentance. Now, we'll come back and talk about repentance later, but repentance basically means to change your mind and to change your mind about God. See, they've been suppressing truth and unrighteousness back in verse 18. Now they need to change their mind and quit suppressing truth and accept the truth of God's existence and his, his revelation. 
Repentance also has the idea coming out of the Old Testament of turning, the idea of just turning to God. It's a very picturesque word there, turning, uh, instead of having your back towards God, turning around and moving uh, toward God. Now, what's interesting here, and I'm going to remind you of this before I'm done, is that if we structure Romans the way that I'm structuring it with this break at verse 5, then repentance is in the context of divine judgment in the first section. Repentance is only used a few times in the book of Romans, and it's not ever used by Paul in the context of justification. How does a person become justified before God? He never uses repentance that way. In fact, the repentance word group is only used a few times in the entire uh, book of Romans, and it's used only about eight or nine times. I, I think, that, wait a minute, this may be the only time it's used in Romans. I was getting confused there. This is the only time it's used in Romans, and it's only used about eight times in all of Paul's 13 epistles. So if the folks who come along and say, oh, brother, you've got to repent of your sin to get to heaven. Paul didn't say that. Jesus didn't say that. John didn't say that. It's not in the, that's not part of the Scripture. Now, you can take it as meaning, well, you have to turn to God, but that, it's not really part of the gospel expressions. When the Philippian jailer, who has a responsibility over uh, Paul and Silas, who are in jail there in Philippi, and the Philippian jailer comes to them and says, what must I do to be saved? They didn't say, repent, brother, of all your sins. They said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And believe is repent. They're not the same. They're not synonyms. So verse 4, Paul uses this rhetorical question to remind the self-righteous person who thinks he can somehow work his way to God that God is still leading him to repentance as well. He needs to turn to God or he will experience this wrath, which I pointed out last time is the judgment of God on unbelievers and believers for their rebellion against him in history, in time. So verse 5 we read now, but in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, that's the standard because you are hardened yourself by suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. And because you haven't turned to God, you're impenitent, which means non-repentant, non-turning. You are treasuring up for yourself. See, God, in the previous verse, God has been giving you forbearance. He's been long-suffering. He's giving you a lot of time to come to uh, a right decision. But, net, net, but if you continue to reject him, then... What we have in verse 5 is that you're just treasuring up, you're storing up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath. Now, if you read this superficially, and it's easy to do that. I'm not using that because I'm, I'm knocking people. You, it's easy to think that this is talking about a future day of judgment, but the way Paul uses the term wrath in the book of Romans, he's not talking about future judgment. He's not talking about the tribulation. He's not talking about eternal condemnation. He talks about it in the present tense. He said it, used it this way in verse 18, the wrath of God is being revealed. This is the judgment or the discipline of God upon rebellious mankind, both as a whole and individually during history, during time. So we treasure up for ourselves judgment in the day of wrath, that, and literally in, uh, in the Greek here, it's talking about, it doesn't say in uh, the day of wrath, it says in a day of wrath. There's not a definite article there. In the day of wrath, in revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Now, Looking at verse 18 and comparing it to verse 25, we see that there is um, a similarity. And this is like bracketing in, in, in literature. And so what, Paul, what the, the similarities of vocabulary indicate that verse 18 starts the section and verse 5 
of chapter 2 ends the section, we have the use of the word wrath. Wrath is used one time in Romans 1.18. It's used twice in Romans 2.5. Both verses use the word revelation. And the chapter 2, verse 5, talks about the righteous judgment of God, which is a, uh, a different word. Um, righteous judgment has to do with diachrisis, which is a combination of the word dikaiosune uh, plus chrisis for judgment. And this is uh, expressed by the concept of the wrath of God being revealed in verse 18. So this sets up a... And what's called technically in literature an inclusio. The beginning and the end and everything included in between is one section. So this is really, verse 5 is really the conclusion of this particular, uh, this particular section. And he's talking about uh, temporal judgment. Now, when we go to the next verse, which is verse 6, it's going to start anew. Now, the way most translators or a lot of different translations handle this is that they put a comma at the end of verse 5, and then they take the relative pronoun that is found at the beginning of verse 6, and they translate it as a dependent uh, relative clause that goes back to what Paul has been saying in verses 1 through 5. But if I'm right, that verse 5 really ends the discussion that began in verse 18, verse 6 starts a new section. And this makes sense. I mean, my view makes sense because if you think about it in terms of the structure, Paul lays down the principle of the wrath of God being revealed in verses 18 to 23, and then he gives the first consequence of suppressing truth in terms of immoral degeneracy in verses 24 to 32. And then he, and that's the immoral person. And then he gives the second example of the moral degenerate in verses 1 through 5. And then at the end of verse 5, when he goes into verse 6, he's going to shift topics to talk about the in time consequences of disobedience and re- to God and rejection of God. So just to uh, summarize this a little bit, what we've seen is that wrath is used, the language that's used in Romans 1.18 and Romans 2.5 indicates an inclusio, a bracketing, that this is all one section, indicated by the vocabulary wrath and revelation. This gives us a consistent thought section that separates this that section from what follows in terms of the fact that he's moving, going to start moving into a new direction. And from verse 6 down to verse 16, the focus is going to be on the final judgment of the unrighteous. Now, who is Paul talking about when he is focusing on those from verse 24 down through 2.5. Is he talking about Christians or non-Christians? Talking about those who've accepted the revelation of God or have rejected the revelation of God? Real simple, basic hermeneutical question. He's focusing on the wrath or the judgment of God on those who reject the evidence of his existence in Romans chapter 1, verse 20. He's not talking about Christians. He's not talking about believers up to this point. He's focusing on unbelievers. And so he's talking about the negative consequences, judgment in time on unbelievers for their rejection of him. Now, coming out of verse 5 is the idea, well, what about those who have done well and those who have not done well? What about God's final ultimate judgment in terms of the moral people and the immoral people that we just talked about. Now, people can get really confused in this, in this ne- next section because of the language. So let's just take time, and we're going to s- slip into this pretty easily. Verse 6 shouldn't be translated who. It should be translated as an independent clause where the relative pronoun is used as a, I mean, yeah, the relative pronoun is used as a independent pronoun. So it should be translated he. 
He will render to every man according to his deeds. Paul starts this next section with a reminder of the principle that God's judgment on, on mankind is going to be based on works. Yeah, that's right. You heard me. It's going to be based on works. And this goes all the way through Scripture. Let's just look at a few things. It's the, the Greek word is ergon, and this is used again and again throughout Scripture. And again and again we're told God's going to judge everybody on the basis of works. In Psalm 62.12, Also to you, O Lord, belongs mercy, for you render to each one according to his work. Proverbs 24.12, If you say, Surely we did not know this, does not he who weighs the heart consider it? He who keeps your soul, does he not know it? In other words, God's omniscience knows every detail of our thinking. And will he not render to each man according to his deeds or his works? Then Jesus stated in Matthew 16, 27, For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. Once again, you have judgment based on works. Now, he's talking about his, the second coming at that point. Now, this takes place, this judgment comes actually after the millennial kingdom, after the thousand-year reign of Christ, what is referred to as the great white throne judgment. This is described in Revelation 20, verse 12. This is after the tribulation, after Jesus returns at the second coming. There's some judgments there. There's the judgment of the Antichrist and the false prophet. There's the sheep and the goat judgments, the judgment of the Gentiles based on how they've treated uh, the Jews in history and in the tribulation. And uh, there's the judgment of Satan where he's cast into the uh, uh, pit, the abyss, and he's chained there for a thousand years. At the end of the thousand years, he's released, leads another rebellion against God, which is instantly destro destroyed, and everyone who rebels against God is vaporized immediately by God, and everyone goes uh, to uh, the grave. And then they're called up for this judgment, verse 12. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and the books are opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. Now, the first set of books that are opened, this is the divine accountant there. You have an angel who's a, you know, CPA, and he is called forward by God. He'll announce your, the, the person's name, not your name. None of us will probably be there. He'll announce the name, and that person comes up, and the accountant comes up, and he's got a stack of books there listing all of the things that have been done. Notice the word doesn't, it doesn't say uh, they're judged according to their good works or their bad works. It's just a general term here. Sin's already been paid for at the cross, so that's not an issue. The issue is what you've done. Do all the good things that you've done, all your generosity, all your kindness, all of the service that you've done to help other people, all of those things, all the good thoughts that you had, the things you wanted to do but you couldn't do. You had great intentions, good motivations, but for whatever reason, in many cases legitimately, you just couldn't fulfill those, those things. But God knows it, so he, you, get, you get points for that. And this uh, accountant angel is going to add up all your points. And the thing is, your points have to reach a billion squared times a billion squared because that's God's perfect standard. And if, it do, if our works don't measure up to his standard, and none of us will get beyond 50. I mean, the very best is going to get maybe 50 points. Just not going to get very far. And so nobody makes it to God's standard. So what this says is the first set of books are opened, and that's the books that list all the things that we've done of those who are there. And another book is opened, which is called the Book of Life. Now, those who are listed in the Book of Life are those who accepted the free gift of life from God. He said, you can't do it on your own. I'll do it for you. I will give eternal life to you as a present. All you have to do is accept it. The basis for acceptance is believing Jesus died for your sins. So 
The book of life lists everyone who's believed in Jesus. And then the last sentence says, And the dead are judged according to their works by the things that are written in the books. So that's the evaluation. Now, verse 13 says, The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in it. All those who were in the Gog and Magog revolution there at the end of, of the millennial kingdom, they get vaporized, but they go to Hades, and so they're all delivered up. And they're judged, again, each one according to his works, not according to his sins, because as we've seen, sins are paid for at the cross. Colossians 2.14, the certificate of debt is erased. It's eradicated by Jesus. So the issue now isn't the sin. It's since you didn't accept Jesus, did all of your good works measure up? And we're told that death in Hades, that is all those that were there, because all the believers have already received their rewards and their resurrection bodies, death in Hades are cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. All the way through the Bible, God makes these little exclusionary points. There was only one way to survive the, Noah, the flood of Noah. You had to get on the boat. There's only one way to get on the boat, only one door on the boat. God always has only one way. There's only one way to avoid losing the firstborn, the death of the firstborn during the tenth plague in Egypt. And that was to put the blood of the lamb on the door. If you didn't put the blood of the lamb on the door, the firstborn was going to die. God says, I'm giving you the instructions. You do it my way. You're okay. Those who don't are excluded. All the way through the Bible, you have again and again and again God saying, I'm giving you the out. If you take it, you're okay. If you don't, you're not. But I define the terms. Now, putting this graphically... We have the great white throne judgment, and then down below on the left, a graphic showing Sheol, the uh, former paradise, which is now vacated. Everyone from the Old Testament was taken to heaven at the time of Christ's ascension or resurrection. You have the great gulf, and then you have torment and the abyss for the prison of the fallen angels. All of those, death and Hades gives up, and everybody stands before God's throne of grace. And their name is either going to be in the book of life, and if it's there, they will have life. And if there's a book of works, then they're evaluated out of that to see if they have the right kind of righteousness. If they don't, then they go to the lake of fire. Let's do this just a little differently here. Here we have God. The triangle represents the Trinity, the triune God up in the upper left. And God has a standard. That's what's up at the top. It's perfect righteousness. And everybody has to make that line. But when we show up at the judgment seat of Christ, all our works of righteousness, it's like when you were a kid growing up and your dad or mom would take you and stand you up against a place in the house and see how much you've grown and put a ruler over the top of your head and mark it. Well, you're going to have all these different markings. My dad would stand up there and, you know, there was a big mark up at the top at about six, one and a half to see if I'd measure, see when I measured up to him. Okay. So that's the same idea here. There's a mark at the top that that's perfect standard, but see those other horizontal lines I have down there. That's the best any human being does just a little bit. Because Isaiah 64, 6 says that all of our works of righteousness are filthy rags. All through the Old Testament, that principle is stated again and again and again. Man just can't do it on his own. That's why he needed that sacrificial animal. Now let's explain it one other way. Here you have God's standard, his righteousness and his justice. But man is down here in the condition of minus R. He just, he, he lacks the standard. He may be good. He may be real good. He may be exceptionally good. But he's caught by the fact that he just can't measure up to that perfect standard. So Jesus came at the cross, and Jesus is perfect righteousness. Now, we... Unless we understand Isaiah 64, 6, you just can't quite understand why you need the gospel. 
all of us are like one who is unclean. All of our righteous deeds, not our bad deeds, not our sins, all of our righteousnesses, all those good things, all the tzedakah in the Hebrew, fulfilling all the mitzvah. You fulfill the mitzvah 100%, still not enough, Isaiah says. Remember, Isaiah is in the Old Testament. It says, all of our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. So never going to get you there. So what God did was he made Jesus to be sin. He's the sin sacrifice. He's the sin offering based on the offerings from the Old Testament in Leviticus. So God said he made him who knew no sin, that is Jesus, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. See, if you're in Christ, if you're identified with Christ, then it's not your negative righteousness that God looks at. He's looking at, God, at Christ's perfect righteousness. It, it, it's like a person who needs a, a loan. may not work today because banks just don't want to give anybody any money, but we'll pretend we're in better times. And you go and you apply for a mortgage. I had to do this on my first mortgage. And I was a seminary student, and I had negative credit, nothing. No job, I'm just a student. But my dad could cosign. And in that cosign, the bank would look not at my value, but would look at his. And on the basis of his credit, I got a loan. See, that's imputed righteousness, the term the Bible says. It's counted to us. And so they're not, they don't, as far as I'm concerned, I was irrelevant. They didn't care what I was doing. They cared what he did. And he had a good credit rating so, and good income, so that took care of it, and the mortgage was given to me. So what happens at the transaction at the cross is that our sins are put on Jesus. He, God the Father imputes them to him so that he pays the penalty, and then his righteousness gets credited to us when we trust him. It's not that we become good. We're still dirty, rotten, lousy sinners. You know, when I got that mortgage from my dad co-signing, it didn't make me any, any, better, any better financially. It didn't give me any money. It just gave me debt. So what happens is when we trust Christ, though, Christ's perfect righteousness is assigned to us so that it covers our lack of righteousness. And when God looks at us and evaluates us, he sees that we possess perfect righteousness, so he declares us to be righteous. Now, what we see in Romans chapter 2 is that there are those who are going to attempt to be righteous through works, and they just can't get there. But if they could, they would have eternal life but they can't. And those who don't have any righteousness, they're going to be punished. But So Paul's talking, in a sense, hypothetically or theoretically. So what we see here is that God's blessing on us is based on our righteousness. Now, let's go back to look at this passage. Pretty easy to understand this. The problem that people have is that they think, make a mistake of thinking that Paul is somehow talking here of actually being able to become saved on the basis of works. Remember what Scripture says? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. What? Not from the source of works, the Greek says. Titus 3.5 starts off, it's not by works of righteousness. Now see, in Ephesians 2.8.9, it says not of works. It should be from works. It's the Greek preposition ek plus the same noun ergon, the plural for ergon for works. It's not from works. Titus 3.5, same phrase. Now here they translate it by, but it's still the same thing. Not from the source of works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. Through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, it's God's work that saves us, not our works at all. And Paul makes it very clear in Galatians 
knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law. The works of the law cannot do it. It's only by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus, Paul goes on to say, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. He couldn't be more clear. That doesn't mean Paul's not saying that you can just go out there and do whatever you want to and be immoral or unethical. He's not saying that, but he's saying that no matter how ethical and moral you are, that's not going to get you into God's presence. Now, when we come to this next section, starting in verse 6, in verse 6 and verse 11, we have another bracket in terms of a concept. Verse 6 begins, He will render each one according to his deeds. Verse 11 reminds us that he can do that because with God there's no partiality. He's perfect righteousness. So this next section from 6 to 11 is bracketed by a reminder of the character of the judge. Now then Paul says, eternal life goes to those who by patient continuance and doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. If you did it and you did it perfectly, you get eternal life. Ah, but the catch is the moral person didn't do it. That's what he just got through saying back in, at the end of verse 1. You, by the, whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same thing. See, the moral person is just as guilty. So he, he's going to fail at fulfilling those conditions of verse 7. Verse 8 says, But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, those everybody practicing verses 24 to 32 of chapter 1, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, punishment in time and eternity. They're not going to have eternal life. So that means that's everybody comes under that category. Nobody qualifies under verse 7. Then he goes on to say in verse 9, Tribulation and anguish on every soul of man, and that's a, an idiom. The soul of man is an idiom for every life. On every life who does evil. Now, who does evil? Everybody. That's what Paul's going to go on to say when he gets down to uh, chapter 3. He's going to say, there is none righteous, no, not one. This is a quote from the Old Testament. It's not something that hangs there that Paul made up. It's what David said back in Psalm 14, 1 through 3. There's none righteous, no, not one. There's none who understand. There's none who seeks after God. They've all turned aside, not most of them, not some of them. They've all turned aside. They've together become unprofitable. There's none who does good, no, not one. Okay, so nobody fits the criteria, so that means everybody comes under the category of evil. And all Paul is saying in these verses is, yes, God judges according to works. If you measure up, you're going to have eternal life, and there will be glory, honor, and peace to everybody, verse 10. But nobody measures up. And because there's no partiality with God, nobody measures up. And then he goes on to say in verse 12, for there is, he says, for as many as have sinned without law, and that is a reference to the Gentiles, they don't have the law of Moses. So he says everybody who sins without the law will perish without the law. And as many as have sinned in the law, that's the Mosaic law, will be judged by the law. Now people say, well, how about those people that never heard because they don't have the law? And Paul says, well, they may not have that level of revelation, but they did have some level of revelation. And he goes on to explain this in verse 13. He says, For not the hearers of the law, law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law. So it's not enough just to come to Bible class, but you have to, and it's not just enough to hear the Torah, you actually have to fulfill everything in the Torah. Not just some, but all. See, Paul will conclude when we get down to verse 28 of chapter 3, Therefore we conclude that a man... Excuse me, that's not the verse I wanted. When he gets into chapter 3, he says that, that, the works, that the law wasn't designed to save people, but to make them aware of their sinfulness. 
So in verse 13, he says, only the doers of the law will be justified, but nobody does it. If you're guilty in one part, you're guilty of the whole thing. And then in verse 14, he says, now this is how it applies to Gentiles. When Gentiles who don't have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves. What he's saying is there's a sense of right and wrong among those who haven't ever received the law of Moses. Cain and Abel never had the law of Moses. Noah didn't have the law of Moses. Abraham didn't have the law of Moses. Isaac didn't have the law of Moses. Jacob, Esau, none of them had the law of Moses. But they had revelation, and they knew what right and wrong was. And what Paul's talking about here is that every human being has a conscience. They inherently have a value system that some things are right and some things are wrong. And if they violate that, they know they're guilty, even if their rights and wrongs are wrong. What's funny is you'll always read people in commentaries will say, everybody has a sense that murder's wrong. That's not true. Everybody has a sense that lying is wrong. No, that's not true. You know, those of you who've been around a little while, some years ago we showed the film The Peace Child, which was Don Richardson's story. Don Richardson was a, was a missionary with New Tribes Missions, and he, went, he and his wife went to uh, Papua New Guinea, and they made contact with a tribe there, and the greatest, highest achievement you could make it as a person or member of that tribe was to lie to someone to the degree that it would eventually cost them their life. And if you tricked them to the degree and deceived them to the degree that they died, you were the best. So the highest value in the culture was lying for the end of murder, taking somebody's life. Now, there's a bunch of people who have a, they do have a conscience. They have a standard. That standard is to be a fine deceiver an excellent liar. See, but they have a standard. They have a conscience. It's the presence of the conscience and a sense of what is right and wrong. It doesn't matter what the values are, as the sense that there are values and you fail to live up to your values so that even the Gentile is condemned because he knows he's not lived up to the, whatever value system he has. That's what Paul says here. So... The Gentiles who don't have the revelation from God by nature do some things, not everything, but some things that are in the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and that's how the conscience bears witness. It shows that you failed to live up to your standards. The, constant, the conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or excusing them. Even those sowy Stone Age people in Papua New Guinea knew that had their conscience condemned if they failed to deceive somebody. And then verse 16 says, In the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. That's the great white throne judgment. So what we've seen here in our study is that, that Paul says the righteousness of God is going to be revealed in history as well as at the end of history. The evidence of God's existence is clear to everybody, and most people have a negative reaction, and they're going to go in two directions. They're going to reject that truth, and they're either going to take a high dive into immorality or they're going to stay up on the high board and look down at everybody and say, I'm better than they are, therefore God ought to let me into heaven just because I'm ethical. And what Paul shows is that's arrogance. And that means that everybody's failed. And God's standard is if you have perfect righteousness, God's going to let you in. But nobody has perfect righteousness. And therefore, he's going to conclude when we get to the end of chapter 3 that all have sinned, the moral person and the immoral person. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so what's the solution going to be? And that's Romans 3.28. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. And that's going to be the conclusion, that we just can't do it. We can't get that justification on our own. It has to come from someone else. So we'll get to that as we develop the next section in Romans 2 next time. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things and to once again be reminded that uh, your standard is an absolute perfect standard, and there's no way we can measure up on our own. There has to be someone else who 
stands in our place who provides that perfect standard and perfect obedience. Father, we pray that you challenge us with what we've studied, that we can understand it, and it will make sense to us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.